Today's dead idea, the balance of power. The pre-World War I idea that a bunch of complicated alliance treaties between the great powers of Europe was going to prevent a great war from ever happening again. And then what happened? A great war happened again. And not just any great war, but THE Great War, World War I, exactly what they thought the balance of power would prevent. So how did they ever think that? That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, with whom I have signed a series of treaties to ensure a balance of furniture in our new house so that no single party's style shall dominate. <laughs> I'm B.T. Newberg. You can call me Brandon. No co-host today. It's just me here, and uh, we're doing a shorter series this month. Like I said last time, it's called... Rachel and Brandon just bought a house and need some time to get some shit done. And, well, basically I can do these shorter single host episodes a little faster, so that's the background of this. In fact, I originally intended this month to be just kind of a hodgepodge bunch of light one-off public domain theater 3000 style episodes. But as I was researching into it, I discovered so much interesting stuff from the 19th century about the lead-up to World War One that... I, I don't know, a fire was lit under my ass, and I just had to make this into a full-on series. So, here we go. We're doing this. <laughs> so we're going a little farther. Um, we're going to have a lot of authentic articles from the period in the public domain theater style, but there's so much complexity behind this that we need some background. So today, we're going to get the context so that in the following weeks, we'll be able to do the articles and get first-hand perspectives on just how in the hell people thought that this balance of power idea was going to prevent a great war, and also how their jaws collectively dropped once it happened. Okay, so the basic idea of the balance of power is pretty simple. The idea is that powerful nations should be allied in such a way so that they balance each other out so that any war between them would drag in all the allies and would result in a stalemate that would be so costly and so pointless that no one would be stupid enough to start such a war. That's pretty much the idea of the balance of power. And many people actually believed that this system would prevent a great war. Not not all war. I mean, little wars were kind of part of it. They assumed that that would happen too. But a big war, a major war that cost millions of lives, that is exactly what the balance of power system was intended to prevent, and many people thought that it would. Not everybody, but many people. Here are some actual quotes from the years just before World War One. World War One was 1914 to 1918, so it's just leading up to that. And all of this comes from a magazine called The Literary Digest. They're all editorials. We don't actually have an author to cite, but anyway, here you are. This one's from 1902. Count Guluchowski sees rather in the dual alliance a strengthening of the peace policy of the triple alliance and welcomes it as such. Okay, so dual alliance, triple alliance, those were alliances between powers in Europe at the time, and he thought they strengthened the peace policy. Pretty straightforward. Next one, 1910. 
Under such circumstances, the one salvation from war is readiness for war, based upon a clear appreciation of what can best be done and what should most be feared. In other words, the threat of all these alliances going to war is what's most to be feared. The readiness for war is what brings salvation. Pretty clear as well. And finally, 1914, from May 1914, so the same year World War I started, but just a few months earlier, the Russian press are consoled by the thought that if Germany should rush into the field, the strongest navy and vastest and best equipped army in the world, meaning the British army and navy, would be there to meet her. Uh, interestingly, the British army was actually pretty small. The navy was huge and powerful. British soldiers were trained well, but it was small. But anyway, so so there you have it. I mean, <laughs> even in the years, even in the months just prior to World War One, there were still people saying like, oh yeah, this is going to prevent a great war from ever happening again. And with hindsight, we can clearly see that yeah, that, that was a really stupid idea. It totally did not prevent a great war. In fact, it led right into it, arguably. However, it, it was not clear at all at the time that that was the case. From the perspective, we've put ourselves in the shoes of the people pre-World War I, it seemed like a very legitimate idea that, that this balance of power could preserve the peace. So that's basically what we're going to get into today. We want to see we want to put ourselves in those shoes and see how it made sense to them at the time that this would be the case. So the balance of power idea has probably always been around to some degree. It's just so intuitive. And to some extent, it's even around today. I mean, we might be getting beyond it. And by the end of this series, we hopefully will get to talk about why we might be getting beyond it. But as a consciously articulated theory of international relations, it starts in Europe in 1648 and culminates in the setup to the Great War, World War I, in 1914. So that's kind of the time range that we're talking about here. Okay, now let's go to an article from just before the Great War, uh, 1910, by Archibald Colcohone. If that's how you pronounce that, I have no idea. But anyway, he sums up the idea pretty succinctly, including the object of this idea. He says, it is essential for the maintenance of the balance of power that the great states of Europe should be grouped in such a manner as to prevent anyone from becoming the supreme arbiter of the continent. So in other words, the idea is that the most powerful countries should be bunched up into these alliances that when they're sort of like weighed in terms of power against, you know, one alliance against the other alliance, they roughly balance the scale. And the object that he says is so important is that no single state can dominate any other. I mean, in this mindset, it's taken for granted that every single player in the game, every state, would love to dominate if they could. They'd love to be the supreme arbiter of the continent, and everybody's constantly trying. But the thing is, these alliances kind of prevent anyone from gaining too much in that direction. So they kind of balance each other out. And if they ever spark a major war to really try to make a gamble for becoming the supreme arbiter, they just end up in a stalemate that would expend resources and gain nothing, so therefore no one will try and peace will last perpetually. Sounds good on paper, right? Rarely worked out quite so neatly in practice, but 
it, it, there's a, a certain ring of plausibility to it. Putting hindsight aside, of course, we, we can almost kind of sort of see how it would have sounded reasonable at the time. Why would you start a war when you know it's just going to drag all your enemies, allies in against you and basically spell ruin for everybody, including yourself? So, okay, second best prize is peace. <laughs> peace as second best, yay! Uh, so basically the idea is settle for peace because the situation is such that you can't have it all. So you get peace. So it's fairly intuitive. Yeah, it's fairly intuitive. What's not so intuitive is how you actually go about pursuing a balance of power policy, the kinds of decisions you make. And Evan Luard, in his book Balance of Power, points out that, so if you are a nation with the opportunity to ally with two potential partners, you pursue a balance of power policy by allying with the weaker of the two. That's right, the weaker one is the one that you want to ally with. Now intuitively you would think you would want the strongest possible ally there is, but let's take a, like an abstract example in order to see how, why it makes sense to choose the weaker one. Okay, so let's say that I'm a nation and I have two potential partners. We'll call them generica, who is say like a nine on a one to 10 power scale, so pretty powerful. And my other potential partner is Wechemistan, who's only a five, so relatively weak. And let's say that I'm a, an eight. I'm, I'm strong, but not as strong as Generica. Now you would think that I would ally with Generica because they're stronger. But actually, here's the thing. I'm worried that at some point, Generica might turn on me. And at that point, they're going to be so strong, especially if I ally with them and make them stronger still through my help, that they're actually the real threat that I'm worried about. So instead, what I want to do is I want to ally with the weaker party, with Wechemistan, so that together we can balance out Generica. And with this in mind, if now we go back to actual history, you can kind of sort of see why great powers like Russia or Austria or Germany would care about what happens in podunk little places like, say, the Balkans. I mean, the Balkan states were Wachimistans. I mean, no insult to Balkan peoples, but at the time, that's kind of what the role they played in power politics. If one of the bigger powers gets some or all of the Balkan states on their side, it throws the entire system out of whack. They get an, an imbalance of power, and so in order to prevent that, you get this bizarre situation that's like elephants squabbling over anthills. Uh, but it gets even weirder than that. So going back to our abstract example, I'm now allied with Wachimistan, right? Now Generica feels threatened because if you add my power, an 8, plus Wachimistan, a 5, that makes 13 against Generica's 9. So now they're going to have to seek out other allies to try to bump their power up to balance us out. And they want to balance at least, they want to get at least a five on their side to balance us out, but preferably like a six or a seven, so they have a little bit of an advantage, right? And if they succeed at that, then I might have to break my alliance with Wachimistan in order to find some partner or combination of partners to balance out their new power level. 
And so it goes on and on like this. And that's kind of the dance that they played in international relations at the time. In fact, the dance is actually a pretty apt metaphor, and they used that at the time. It was called the stately quadrille. <laughs> now, a, a quadrille is one of those dances that you see in, like, you know, period dramas and stuff, like sort of medieval and renaissance ones where there's harpsichords playing and whatnot, and all the nobles are dancing on the floor with the ladies, and you're constantly switching partners. And that's what this balance of power system was like because you would be constantly switching alliance partners in order to find the most favorable balance. You're forever changing up your alliance partners. And you might very well find yourself allied with your age-old enemy simply because the balance demanded it. I mean, think about World War I. You have English and French fighting in the same trenches. What? <laughs> you think about that. France and England had been bitter rivals for over a thousand years before that. How in the world did they end up being like buddy-buddy in the same trenches? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it does finally make some sense in the context of this balance of power. Because what happened? Germany unified. Germany unified and suddenly became a greater power and a greater threat than either one of them. And they had to ally up in order to balance Germany out. Some simplification there, but that's, that's basically what happened. So that's how things went under this balance of power system. You could very well end up being allied with your age-old arch nemesis just because of how the system worked. So to sum up, the balance of power was a delicate system of competition that, in theory at least, promoted peace because everyone's constant jockeying for an advantage was so intense that they prevented each other from getting a leg up enough to dominate the whole. And if anybody even tried, they would spell ruin for themselves along with everybody else. So why try? That is the balance of power. Now I know what some of you might be thinking at this point, because now we live in the 21st century, we have a little bit of a different mindset, and you might be thinking at this point, wait a minute, guys, why does this have to be seen as a zero-sum game here, where if one country gains, the other one has to be seen as losing? Why can't we all just kind of work together in a non-zero-sum game where we're all like making this big happy land union kind of thing, and everybody wins? A little bit more of a 21st century mindset. Well, that's not what the mindset was at the time. It might seem simple to us in the abstract that, of course, you would just, you know, ally together and just stop all this bullshit. But in real world politics, and even today, it's a whole lot more complicated than that. I mean, look at how the European Union is just barely holding together, right? So here's the problem. The problem is, you can you really trust your partners not to seek their own advantage, especially considering how willing the great powers were at the time to break alliances in order to seek a more favorable balance. They're going to move on to the next dance partner as soon as it's favorable to them, right? So can you really trust them to join you in this happy union where we're all allied together? Probably not. It, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like the, the prisoner's dilemma type of situation where you can't trust your partner enough, so 
you'd really better just grab your own advantage while you can before your partner has a chance to turn on you. That was what drove this system. Interestingly, though, there are situations that don't land you inevitably in this prisoner dilemma type of situation that don't conduce to a balance of power state of things. So, first of all, if one power already dominates to the point where any alliance of other powers is not going to be enough to balance them out, then in that situation, it's more in the interest of the other powers to work with rather than against the single great power. That's kind of sort of the situation that's developed today. So after the end of the Cold War, we really only have one major superpower in the world, which current being America. And so at that point, if it was a balance of power state of things, we should see everybody else in the world you know, aligning in an alliance against America. And it's kind of happening, but not really. So are we still in a balance of power state? It's not clear. So that that's one situation there. No balance of power politics is necessary in this kind of situation because it's really a moot point. Anyway, you can't balance out that one power that has hegemony. The other situation that doesn't conduce to a balance of power state of politics is if states are unable to choose their alliance partners based solely on the expediency of the situation, solely on the advantage that it would give them in the game. So say, for example, that this nation states have religious or ideological commitments that in their minds take priority over their immediate advantage. In that situation, the balance of power kind of thing is not going to work. And in fact, that is the state of affairs that was the case prior to when this whole balance of power idea came up. So now let's go to the actual history, start our narrative here, and we'll see how this whole thing develops, okay? So we're going back to something called the Thirty Years' War in 17th century Europe. Um, at this time, states were bunched up not along alliance lines that were just about the expediency of moment, but specifically along religious lines. Catholic states allying with Catholic states and Protestant states aiding Protestant states. And since these religious populations were distributed unevenly, power was also distributed unevenly, leading to a situation where the temptation for the stronger side to try to dominate the weaker was just too irresistible. And that's pretty much what happened. The Thirty Years' War started out as a religious war, but then it quickly turned into this sort of power domination game that ravaged Central Europe. There were all kinds of things done that today we would call atrocities and war crimes, although they didn't have that concept at the time of a, of a war crime. That's something that developed kind of almost like in response to this. Anyway... So it turned into this power domination game that really, by the end, had nothing to do with religion. It was just about who could grab the most power. And in the end, it basically took down the Holy Roman Empire, fractured it into um, about more than 200 like tiny statelets in what would eventually become Germany. But at this point, it's becoming totally disunified. And when it all finally ended and the dust cleared, the leaders of the world realized, like, holy shit, this sucks. <laughs> this, this, this was one of the worst wars that they had seen up to this point. 
and to them, this was their great war. The Thirty Years' War was something they never wanted to happen ever again. And so they they did some real navel-gazing and, and looked at, like, what drew us into this horrible conflict? And when it finally ended, they recognized that they had to do something to prevent this from ever happening again. Never again a great war like the Thirty Years' War. What they did in response was revolutionary. In 1648, they created something called the Peace of Westphalia, which redefined things so much that scholars have ever after referred to the international relations system as the Westphalian system. And that's kind of the system that we have now, but we might be getting beyond it, like I was hinting at earlier. Anyway, so it's the Westphalian system. This is when they created that. The Peace of Westphalia established states rather than individual leaders like kings and queens as the principal agents of international relations and declared that every state had the right to choose their own religion, no state had the right to meddle in other states' internal affairs, and within each state, religious minorities' right to worship would be at least somewhat protected. And as a result of the Peace of Westphalia, international alliances would thereafter proceed not along religious ideological lines, but along secular ones. The expediency of the moment, the advantage that you can gain in an alliance in response to the time. Real politique, as Bismarck would later famously call it. And believe it or not, it, it actually worked. Well, well, kind of. Sort of. It depends. Well, so as for the religion stuff, that part, amazingly, was one of the things that did actually totally work. I would never have expected that would have been the thing. But yeah, religion ceased to be a major factor in who allied with who after the Peace of Westphalia. After that, Catholic states were as likely to war with each other as with Protestant ones, or ally with, you know, across lines, or even with allying with Muslim states, for crying out loud. Uh, and the same went for ideology, too. Parliamentary countries were as likely to war with each other as with absolute monarchies, and vice versa, and so on down the line. Alliances after the Peace of Westphalia were made not based on religion or ideology, but on what was left over when you take away those two things the expediency of the immediate situation. If my rival gets too strong, I'm going to ally with Wichemistan to balance them out, whether or not I agree with Wichemistan's religion or ideology, and even if I was at war with them two years ago, because that's what the balance of power demands at the time. That's what counted after the Peace of Westphalia. Now, as for reducing the frequency of war, or the savagery of it, that part's pretty debatable whether it succeeded or not. The period between the Peace of Westphalia, which was 1648, and the French Revolutionary Wars, which start 1792, is often said to be characterized by restricted warfare. And the term in German is actually Kabinetskriege, or cabinet wars. And this restricted warfare is waged by alliances of powers, but on a more smallish scale, using mainly professional armies attempting to outmaneuver each other on the field. And these wars are said to be fought with limited aims, less severe conduct, and with fewer territorial gains or losses in the end. 
and compared to what had come before in the Thirty Years' War, it was almost more like almost a game, or so it's been described. And there are some examples to support this idea of restricted warfare. In the 1689-1697 War of the Grand Alliance, fought to check the expansion of France, its generals were hailed as civilized even when at war, quote-unquote. And during the Seven Years' War of 1754-1763, and by the way, that's not seven years, but that's another story. Anyway, it's called the Seven Years' War. During that war, Berlin was captured twice, yet not plundered. Meanwhile, during this period, some rules of conduct were established, like how diplomats were to be treated, how trade was to be conducted during war, and how far territorial waters extended offshore came to be fixed as the range of a cannon shot, and whether some weapons such as bombs might actually be too vicious to be used at all kind of a nuclear disarmament kind of thing of its day, that kind of an idea. And most of all, there was a great deal of talk of Europe as a society, kind of like a whole Europe that, above and beyond the interests of any individual party within Europe, had overarching interests, and everybody should kind of act in the interest of the greater European society or the greater European commonwealth for the mutual benefit. And all of the leaders ought to ideally act um, for this. There was a whole lot of talk about that during this period. But in the end, it may have been mostly just that talk. I actually had to re-record this whole section of this episode because previously I had talked about restricted warfare the way I had heard about it, and then I read this book, Balance of Power, by historian Evan Luard, and... I was like, oh crap, i got to re-record everything now. So, (laughs) Evan Luard provides a different picture in his book. He examines the numerous wars of this period and finds no significant evidence that leaders were any less ambitious in their aims, nor any more noble in their conduct, nor any more merciful in the territorial spoils of war taken. On the contrary, they strove with fantastic ambition, such as Charles XII of Sweden conquering most of the north of the continent, with not very many troops, by the way. Pretty ambitious. So that kind of torpedoes that part of it. The leaders of this period conducted themselves with considerable savagery as well, destroying cities, burning crops, and butchering civilians en masse. Frederick the Great estimated that one out of every nine Prussians were killed in the Seven Years' War, so it it was bloody. These were actually bloody wars. And, and, and of course, Luard gives example after example after example of this. I can't go into everything. Just giving you a taste, so check it out if you are doubtful. So that torpedoes that part of it. And finally, contrary to the idea that there was some kind of um, holding back of how much the victor gained and the loser lost, the leaders of this period gobbled up territories gluttonously such as the complete absorption of Norway by Denmark, Belgium by Austria, Lithuania by Poland, Estonia and Livonia by Russia, Hungary by Austria, and most of Italy by Spain and Austria. And even Poland, which was the second largest state at the start of this period, was by the end completely eliminated by the other powers and partitioned between them like zombies devouring a corpse or something. So 
how do you get out of that that there was some kind of like oh the victor doesn't gain that much and the loser doesn't lose that much i i don't know that it pretty much takes it down Loard writes quote if in practice despite these ambitions most of the major states survived it was not because of some generally accepted convention or rule of the system still less because of the moderation of governments but because as frederick the great noted Given the strength of the rival alliances, it was not usually in practice possible to achieve the overwhelming victory, which alone would have secured those ends. Most wars ended in a draw, which frustrated attempts to destroy a rival utterly. End quote. So, it does not exactly seem to fit the evidence that the period after the Peace of Westphalia was a time of restricted warfare. It is possible that in some areas and for some powers restricted warfare was advantageous which we will kind of take a look at in a future episode on frederick the great but for the most part though the toy soldiery kind of image of formalized almost game-like warfare might be a little exaggerated however despite this one thing that is worth noting is that the overall death tolls of the cabinet wars did actually tend to be a bit lower, at least by my calculations, using uh, admittedly not great statistics kind of found haphazardly online. Uh, but, you know, it gives us an idea at least. So let's take the major wars of the 18th century as a case study to see this, that their death tolls actually weren't quite as bad. So we have to compare to the Thirty Years' War, of course, which, as I calculate, came out to about an average of 100,000 dead per year over about 30 years. Okay, so first uh, you get the War of the Spanish Succession, 1702 to 1715, 30,000 dead per year, which sounds like a lot, but compared to 100,000 dead per year, not that much, right? Next, 1718 to 1720, the War of the Quadruple Alliances, 14,000 dead per year. 1733 to 1738, War of the Polish Succession, 20,000 dead, even less, right? 1740 to 1748, War of the Austrian Succession. There are a lot of succession wars in this period. 41.25 thousand dead per year. Next, you get 1754 to 1763, the Seven Years' War. This was the worst one of the period. 96.4 thousand. So that's pretty comparable to the Thirty Years' War. But then after that, 1778 to 1779, War of the Bavarian Succession, only 20,000 dead again. So that kind of it it shows at least a, a considerable difference, right? The, the death tolls were lower, with the exception of the Seven Years' War. So with that exception, uh, the death tolls were significantly less than in the Thirty Years' War. But this drop in death count does not exactly seem to have been due to some kind of noble nod to fair sport in war, nor some chess-like formalization of the rules of warfare. Rather, as Luard noted, it seems the ambitions of the leaders, who might certainly have wanted to wreak far greater havoc on their enemy and kill far more, were frustrated by the stalemating alliances of the era, in other words, by the balance of power. Yet even this has to be qualified. For, for all the talk of acting to preserve the balance of power, it actually seems pretty rare that a leader ever actually withheld from some act that they would otherwise have perpetrated, save for the sake of the balance, 
nor even that they even allied specifically to preserve the balance. Seems rare that they actually did either one of those things, which the balance seemed to require that they'd be ready to do them at the drop of a hat. Rather, it was the frustrating fact of the balance itself, the sheer fact that all these alliances were in place, that forced leaders back from wanton destruction or forced them to join together against a common threat. And on this point, Luard is pretty emphatic. He says, quote, It is just possible to discern a tendency among the member states to combine against a major threat, but this was spasmodic and unreliable and above all belated. It can therefore scarcely be reckoned as systematic. Insofar as the required response occurred, it was not the result of commitment to the abstract principle that a balance be maintained. It was rather a recognition, by some states at least, that over the long term, their own particular interest demanded that they should prevent any country from becoming all-powerful, end quote. Yeah. Now, to be fair... That is kind of what the balance of power theory itself predicts. It expects each leader to try as hard as frickin' possible to gain an advantage, and all that collective striving is what's supposed to keep them from achieving their aims and therefore preserve the peace. So on this point, it kinda sorta halfway gets a pass. But in any case, it was not long before the balance of power as such was toppled over entirely just knocked the scales off the table. Soon, a conflict would come that would see death toll spike to 382,000 per year, almost four times that of the 30 years' war. And this was due to a little man named Napoleon. So Napoleon came to power in 1799 on the heels of the French Revolution. And while he pretty much ignored all the ideals that the revolution was fought for, he did keep one thing. It was a kind of anti-elitism, at least with regard to military recruitment. See, hitherto, wars had been fought mainly by these professional standing armies, like I mentioned, but the Jacobin government of the French Revolution just before Napoleon came to power found themselves beset on all sides with powers that were hostile to their new republican ideals note the uh, ideology coming into play here now once again. And so this Jacobin government instituted something called the levy en masse. I don't know how to pronounce that in French, but anyway, mass conscription. And what this was, was every able-bodied unmarried man was called up to fight. Well, married men were assigned to like the forge and provisions duties. So war effort, just not fighting. Women were called to make tents and work in the hospitals, so again, conscripted to, into the war effort, and even children and old men were called to contribute. According to the text of the actual document, the levy en masse, it says, quote, the children shall turn old linen into lint, the old men shall repair to the public places to stimulate the courage of the warriors and preach the unity of the republic and hatred of the kings. <laughs> so every... So Basically, every citizen in the New Republic was, you know, conscripted into the war effort in order to protect um, this New Republic of France. And I don't, I don't know what value lint was, why they're having children make lint, but it must have had something to do with their cannons. I don't, that'd be my first guess. I don't know. Anyway, the result of this policy 
was an enormous freaking army. So what do you suppose that that did to the balance of power? Suddenly, one side of the scales was a whole lot heavier than the other. And when Napoleon finally came to power on the heels of this revolution, he was handed a fuck ton of troops. He took one look at the balance of power system as it stood in Europe at the time, said, that's stupid, and basically plunged all of Europe into chaos. And we all know what happened next. The Napoleonic Wars were the worst Europe had seen up to that point, ever since the Thirty Years' War. The Napoleonic Wars saw 3.5 million people dead, so even more than the Thirty Years' War, and three and a half times more lethal than the worst of the Cabinet Wars between those, between the Thirty Years' War and the Napoleonic Wars. Three and a half times more lethal, all because the balance of power had been upset. So the balance of power system had been instituted to prevent exactly this from happening. It had been intended to set the conditions so that a great war like this could never happen, but then it did happen. And you would think that at this point, someone somewhere in Europe would rethink that maybe this balance of power thing wasn't actually working, wasn't actually preventing such big wars like this, but they didn't really. I mean, after all, Napoleon had behaved exactly as the theory predicted. Given the advantage offered by his Grand Armée, he sought to exploit his opportunity just like it predicted he would. And the other powers, it was really their fault for not being able to properly balance him out. So, I mean, everybody after Napoleon then basically just had to adopt the same kind of conscription sort of tactics and do a more total war thing rather than this restricted warfare thing in order to be able to garner the kind of power required to balance out such a state. But otherwise, it was pretty much back to business as usual, at least insofar as concerns the idea of the balance of power. I mean, the leaders of Europe were basically like, okay, guys, seriously this time, no great war ever again. When we mean it, we mean it this time, no great war ever again. And they doubled down on the idea of the balance of power as the guarantor of lasting peace. But Napoleon's ravages had longer lasting impacts than what we've been talking about. What we've been talking about was worse enough, but there was more to it, okay? And these impacts would eventually set the stage for World War I. And this was nowhere more true than in Germany. Ever since the Thirty Years' War, Germany had been a disunified patchwork of tiny independent statelets. There wasn't any such thing as the state of Germany in all that time. It was all these independent little places. And all the great powers of Europe knew that if Germany ever was able to unify again, they'd be a power to be reckoned with. But the thing was, the various German peoples couldn't agree on anything, and so they stayed disunified until Napoleon upset the status quo. And then, the one thing that all the German peoples could rally around was, fuck Napoleon! <laughs> so, so Napoleon's conquest basically galvanized this budding German nationalism, providing exactly the impetus it needed to get unification rolling. Nationalism was, a, was a, a big factor in things leading up to World War I. Remember we said how the balance of power could not exist if states were basing their alliances on something other than the immediate advantage of the moment, like religion or ideology? Well, nationalism wasn't religion, but it was close. It was an ideology. 
And if that took priority, that could really mess things up, and it really did in the lead up to World War I. You get nationalism starting basically with the French Revolution, where now they're fighting not for a monarch, but for the state of France itself, the Republic. And that gets this idea percolating. And then Napoleon ravaging through the tiny German statelets and the Germans being like, we don't want to be part of Napoleon's deal. And when they finally throw off Napoleon's yoke, then they they remember that, that we, they united together. And there's something about this Germanness that sticks. And that provides the impetus that is needed to get German unification rolling. And into this situation comes Otto von Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor of Prussia. Not Germany yet, but Prussia. And Prussia was one of those independent statelets of the whole German region, but it was like the biggest one. And it become really big because of Frederick the Great, who was just excellent at playing the balance of power game and basically built up Prussia into an enormous military power. I mean, it was famously said that Prussia is not a government with an army, but an army with a government. <laughs> so Autobahn Bismarck is handed this military power called Prussia. He becomes the chancellor, and he throws this impressive Prussian military into a series of wars, bringing about the unification of Germany, which basically presses the reset button on the balance of power game again. Like I said, France and England and everybody else knew that if Germany ever unified, they would be a major power to be reckoned with. Well, it happened, and then everybody else had to scramble to get new dance partners in order to balance them out. So it presses the reset button. So suddenly, there was a unified, massive military power right in the center of the continent, and everybody was scrambling, basically, to redraw their treaties to accommodate and find a new balance. This resulted in the alliance system in place on the eve of World War I, which was largely negotiated by Bismarck and to his advantage. He was an incredible diplomat, not in the kind of peace-loving, hippy-dippy sort of way, but like, basically, I have this army, and if you don't do what I'm going to say, I'll invade you. He was really good at, at bluffing that way. He really didn't want to have another great war, although he thought it seemed quite realistic that there could be one, but he didn't want it. He, but he was very much willing to use the threat of war to get what he wanted in these alliances and create a new balanced system that was favorable to Germany. And so he excelled at this balance of power game. But unlike so many other people that we've quoted today, he didn't actually believe that the balance of power system would prevent another major war. Quite the opposite, in fact. He famously uttered an eerily accurate prediction. He said in, uh, I think it was the Congress of Berlin, which was sort of like a if you ever played the game Civilization, you know, before the UN, you have the, you have the World Congress. Um, that was kind of based on this. It was sort of like a proto-UN, where countries are coming together to kind of try to talk out their differences and, and stuff. So he said during one of these that one day the Great European War will come out of some damn foolish thing in the Balkans. So he thought, like, this war is coming and it's probably going to happen in some podunk little place like the Balkans, where they're just, a mistake will happen, and then all of us will be dragged into war. A war he didn't want, but that 
he thought could really happen and might perhaps be inevitable. Okay, so now what I want to do with the remaining time of this episode is to drill down deep into what these, what this state of affairs was that was uh, created largely through the negotiations of Otto von Bismarck and which uh, set the stage for World War I. Up until now, it hasn't really mattered who was allied to who for the purposes of our story because it was always changing anyway. But now this is right before the flashpoint of the Great War, and it it's basically it's it's like it's like the almost the end of, of a round of musical chairs where you know everybody's been going around, but then the music stops, and we want to look at what that picture looked like right there in that that freeze frame, so that we can understand why there were certain people who didn't get a chair to sit in at the end of the game, <laughs> which I suppose that would be the Ottoman Empire, <laughs> or maybe Austria Hungary, uh, but anyway. Uh, what we want to look at there is to, to get that picture of what those alliances were so that in the ensuing episodes, when we get to talk about nationalism, we get to talk about the Balkans and Sarajevo and how it all, how it all went to shit, basically, um, it'll make some sense. So let's paint that picture. And by the way, we'll have a, a map of this on the website. You can go to www.deadideas.net and you can see exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, so here's what happened. So Germany unified, right? Otto von Bismarck is the Iron Chancellor of this Germany, and he is terrified that everybody will gang up on Germany because if you look at Germany on the map, it's in the middle of everything, right? There's You got a sea to the north, but not a big sea. It's pretty easy to jump across the, the Baltic Sea, from say Sweden or from Russia or from Britain so that's not really much of a protection meanwhile on all the other sides of you you've got powers that could just invade right in so it's crucial to the defense policy of Germany that they set up the right kind of alliances so that nobody will want to do that and if they do then you got the right allies on your side so that you can win that war and come out with some reasonable sense of victory. So first what he does is he negotiates something that at the time was called the dual alliance. And don't worry too much about what this was called because sometimes it's called this, sometimes another thing is called a dual alliance, whatever. The point is it's between this new Germany and Austria. And this is this is totally characteristic of the balance of power system because during the whole unification process, Prussia and Austria were bitter rivals because they were the two big players amongst the German-speaking peoples, and it was not at all clear who was going to end up the big boy on the block that was going to be able to lead Germany into unification, and whether the unified Germany was going to be what we now know of as now Germany and separate Austria, or whether it was all going to be one big unified German-speaking nation. And as it turned out, they they couldn't work out their differences enough to actually unify both Austria and what is now Germany. But as it turned out, the German states of the north unified into what we now call Germany, largely under the leadership of Prussia, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire remained its own thing to the south. And they had this bitter rivalry, but 
then they recognized that what the balance of power demanded was that they ally in order to prevent uh, a much worse situation from developing. So Germany and Austria-Hungary become best buds. Like they, they are just like really tight uh, after that. And it takes a little bit, but, but Bismarck um, cements it. So you've got Germany and Austria-Hungary allied together. And then they add to that, in time, they add Italy to that as well. Uh, so that's going to end up being called the Triple Alliance. Italy has an asterisk by it because funny things kind of happened when World War I actually broke out. They didn't really follow up on their uh, promise to ally with the other two and actually ended up joining the other side. But nevertheless, at, on the eve of World War I, all three of those powers were allied as what's called the Triple Alliance. Okay. Now, to balance those powers out, because now that's pretty strong. You get all those people together, that's uh, quite a threat to all the other powers in Europe. To balance those two out, France, who's just to the west of Germany and really is at threat, you know, by a unified Germany, especially bolstered with the power of Austria-Hungary, France allies with Russia. This is actually not, that's, this is something that Bismarck worked hard to protect against, and he didn't succeed because the, his nightmare is to have to fight a war on two fronts, both west and east. So he was really trying to keep Russia neutral or potentially on, you know, the German side, but that didn't quite work out, okay? Add to that, it wasn't quite an alliance, but the British kind of had an agreement, uh, like a cordial handshake kind of thing, that they were more or less going to side with uh, France and Russia. But nah, it wasn't like an actual set treaty. It very well could have developed that Britain would have sided with Germany. And hitherto, they had actually had pretty decent ties with Germany. Certain things uh, had put a strain on those relations in recent times. Uh, basically, Britain, with its enormous navy and its colonies over the world, was a really powerful economic nation. But believe it or not, Germany had become a, an extremely powerful economic nation as well. I don't quite understand all the ins and outs of it, but somehow that unified Germany managed to get a lot of that trade flowing through them, despite not having colonies. Bismarck actually wasn't too interested in having colonies, but he was interested in getting his hands on all of that money flow and managed to do so pretty well. So there was a strain between Britain and Germany based on this kind of business competition, economic competition for that trade. And so there's a little bit of strain there, but it was not at all clear which side Britain was really going to fall in on when things, you know, came to a head. There was kind of a handshake that they were going to be part of France and uh, Russia, and the Britons did have an agreement with Belgium that they would defend them. And as things finally turned out in the end, um, it was that agreement with Belgium once Belgium was invaded by Germany, that allowed Britain to say, okay, we're coming in on the side of the Allies. But the point is, the way things were setting up was basically you've got the triple alliance of Germany, 
Austria-Hungary to the south, and to the south of that, Italy. Basically as sort of like a, just a, a strip running down the middle of Europe. And then to both sides, you've got well, what was called the Triple Entente. And I think an Entente is more like, it's like a word for a sort of agreement but not full alliance, right? So France, Russia, and Britain, question mark. That is the situation that developed just prior to World War I. That is the state of musical chairs, the, the freeze frame that existed right as the music cut out and everybody scrambled to sit down in a chair and not everybody was going to be able to find a chair to sit in, right? That was World War I. And, and the maintenance of these alliances was accompanied by an enormous amount of anxiety. And in future episodes, we're actually going to look at articles that show that, that sh it's going to show some people worried that uh, the certain alliance is going to fall apart, and then what do we do? And you got other people in articles being like, no, no, it's fine, it'll never happen, and you know everything's going to be fine. And they, it almost shows their the anxiety in the air all the more because they're having to... to you know, tamp down the concerns of other people. We'll see that from actual articles from the time leading up to World War I in future episodes. So this triple alliance versus the triple entente system is, it's, 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 it's just a powder keg waiting to happen. Waiting to happen, right? And what, of course, sets it off? That damn foolish thing in the Balkans that Bismarck predicted. So we're going to see that as well in future episodes. So that's actually where we're going to leave off our narrative for today. The Balkans, the flashpoint of the Great War, as we know now, was a real powder keg of a situation. It was a clusterfuck of a situation in Europe at the time. And it's so complicated that it really deserves its own episode, so we're going to hold that back and, and really try to describe that well, because in any documentary or history class that I've ever seen... Uh, about the lead up to World War One, it was like things were bad in the Balkans, but let's not talk about that because let's get to World War One. But what, what, wait, what, what happened in the Bal? What, what was going on in the Balkans that was so crazy that it could spark a great war? I want to really drill down into that, so let's do a full episode on that. We'll hold that off, okay? But just to put a cap on what we've talked about today, to to conclude, so the balance of power system was developed after the Thirty Years' War in order to prevent a great war like that from ever happening again. They, basically, they had seen what to them was a nuclear holocaust, and they were like, guys, okay, we can't, we can't do this again. This is going to be the death of us all. We got to do something different. They created the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, and ever after that, they had these cabinet wars so that the overall death tolls were significantly less and it kind of sort of worked for a while there were plenty of wars but like but not nearly as bad as the 30 years war however then <laughs> you got napoleon and if, if it wasn't going to be napoleon it was going to be someone else who would come in and be like i don't want to play this game this game is dumb right and screw everything up and that's kind of what happened and ever after that things got redrawn they tried to believe that the balance of power system was still working and that it, they, they could still put their faith in it. And that, was the, that created the state of affairs leading up to World War I. 
And then, of course, we get the assassination of Franz Ferdinand in the Balkans, and that's what sets it off. So then the idea becomes well and truly dead, because at that point you get something far, far worse than the Thirty Years' War, far worse than the Napoleonic Wars, the worst war that Europe had ever seen up to that point. So we'll leave it off there for today. So thanks for listening, everybody. Remember, if you like what we're doing here, or even if you just want to help Rachel and I out since we just bought our first house. And by the way, we're going to have a dedicated podcasting room in the new house. That's right. No more recording in my closet. Yay. So if you want to help out the show or help out us, why not support us on Patreon? You can get great perks like your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I just drew all of the cat as Genghis Khan with his Slavic slave Clint Bohati. <laughs> that was an interesting one. Clint asked me to actually make the focus of it be his cat. <laughs> uh, you can see that on our supporters page at www.deadideas.net. I also drew Rachel, my wife, as a 1950s lady head vase. The first time I've ever had anyone has to be drawn as an inanimate object, so that's cool too. But you too can get your portrait drawn by supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. All right, everybody, see you next week. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Mm-hmm.